Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 294. It all comes crashing down. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. This week, members are listening to the next installment on our members-only series on slavery, where we talk about how slavery exploded on the British Isles during the rise of the Viking Age. And we delve deeper into questions about who slavery impacted and how the lives of British slaves suddenly became much, much worse. And you can get instant access to that and all the other members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Samantha, Deborah, and Miguel for signing up already. The story of the last few episodes is a story about a lesson that humanity has had to relearn again and again throughout history. When your society is ordered around a single figure, it's likely to descend into chaos the moment that that figure goes away. And finding a new balance in the midst of sudden cascading failures is a difficult task that many people in history have failed to do. And so as you listen to this episode, keep that in mind. The rare entries that we have from this era only cover major political events, and even then, they don't cover them all that well. But behind all these stories, hiding just outside the record, are political powers of this world scrambling and a new order struggling to form. The island was forming a new pecking order, and the biggest question left was who would be on top now that Athelstan was dead. And there was no reason it couldn't be Olaf Guthrithson. After all, he had redeemed himself. Sitting in Jorvik, no one could deny that the stain of Brunember had been washed clean. He had reclaimed his birthright. And more than that, he had done something that his father could have only dreamed of. By taking the five boroughs, Olaf had reestablished the Dane law. But just because he held Jorvik didn't mean that he had absolute dominion over the north. There were entire kingdoms up there that had their own circumstances and sets of incentives. And just because Olaf had fought alongside Strathclyde and Scotland at the Battle of Brunanburh, didn't mean that the two kingdoms would still be supporting his aims. To start with, they no longer shared a common enemy. King Athelstan was dead, and the imperial power of England was broken. His imperium had united the interests of Olaf and the North more than anything else. So with the threat of Athelstan gone, much of the urgency for cooperation went with him. Beyond that, the circumstances of their kingdoms had also changed. Following Brunanburh, King Constantine of Scotland had established a peaceful relationship with England. And that was a fact that was unlikely to change. Constantine was old. He was reaching the end of his life. And succession rather than war, was increasingly his main concern. There was a time when he and his kingdom had options for who would have the crown next. But after Brunanburh, Constantine was left with just one son, Indulf. And Indulf was young. Some said too young to rule. In particular, Constantine's cousin, Malcolm, was saying that Indulf was too young to rule. And Malcolm was also pointing out that he was on the line of succession as he was the son of the previous Scottish king. So with the succession crisis looming, Scotland had more than enough reasons to not want to take part in Olaf's conquest. And if they did get involved, they very well might come in on the English side. Strathclyde couldn't be counted on as an ally either, 
A handful of years had passed since King Olaf and King Owain of Strathclyde stood shoulder to shoulder at Brunanburh, but a lot can change in that time, and a lot had changed. In particular, King Owain of Strathclyde was dead. And we aren't sure exactly how he died. Some scholars theorize that he was one of the five kings, we're told, died at Brunanburh, and that might be the case. But either way, it's clear that by the time of Olaf's conquest of Jorvik, King Owain had been dead for years, and ruling in his place was his son, Diffenwall. And with a new king comes uncertainty. You don't know if the old alliances will hold. So in the years following Owain's death, I'm confident that Olaf was reaching out to King Diffenwall and trying to establish a political relationship. And that actually seems to have paid off, because at some point during this period, Strathclyde and Jorvik re-established a close relationship potentially even a military alliance, though the record on that is unclear. But whatever the agreement was, their relationship was cozy enough to enrage King Edmund. In less than 12 months after claiming Jorvik, even with a more neutral Scotland, Olaf had managed to conquer the five boroughs and realign himself with Strathclyde. That was terrible news for Edmund, and actually really good news for Olaf. But it wasn't all good news for him. His base of power was centered in Northumbria, and Northumbria was a bit of an interesting territory compared to many of the other kingdoms. And that's in large part thanks to its persistent diversity that went all the way up through its noble classes. Some of the nobles descended from the ancient Anglo-Saxon dynasties like the line of Oswald. Other nobles likely had lines that traced all the way back to the Britons who were ruling over the ancient kingdom of Bernicia. There are also the Scandinavian nobles whose lines had been installed by Halfdan, Ragnald, and others. Based upon archaeological findings and the few glimpses we have in the record, all of these groups in the north mixed and blended their cultures. And over time, Northumbria was growing into its own unique culture on the island. But here's where it becomes a problem for Olaf. In Northumbria, this sharing of culture didn't extend into sharing power. And any time someone in Northumbria declared themselves to be king, there always seemed to be at least a few nobles nearby who were sharpening their daggers or raising a warband. And that doesn't seem to have changed by the mid-10th century. Which means that by taking power, Olaf made himself their newest target. Furthermore, there's also the issue of geography. Olaf's power center was the city of Jorvik. Jorvik was actually so central to his rule that his kingdom was named after it. And for good reason. Jorvik was deeply Scandinavian. It was where Halfdan shared out large portions of his lands to his followers. It was where Ragnald had been based. Essentially, it was the territory that was most likely to be friendly to Olaf. But it was also in the southern portion of Northumbria. And the bulk of Northumbrian lands were to the north of it. And that was a problem, because the people of the north, the part that had once been the kingdom of Bernicia, don't appear to have been as enthusiastic about Olaf as their southern neighbors. So in addition to putting down rebels and dissidents in the five boroughs, Olaf also had to worry about the noble classes of Northumbria, because many of them, especially the nobles in the north, were likely just as restless. But... Now that peace had been established with the English, and his Jarls were securing his dominion over the five boroughs, likely at the edge of a sword, King Olaf finally had a chance to deal with problems at home. So we're told that in 941, just one year after his conquest of the five boroughs, Olaf marched up beyond the River Tees 
and sacked the ancient Anglian church at Tinningham near Dunbar, which during this era would have been part of the Bernician portion of Northumbria. Now records for what was going on in this region are sparse, and we utterly lack a complete account of northern activity. But while it might be tempting to view the sacking of this church as an act of religious animosity, that's probably a mistake. There were plenty of reasons to sack a church beyond religion. The fact is, churches were often nexuses of political and social activity. So, as an example, if you wanted to stamp out resistance, breaking the church that might have been serving as the center of that rebellion wouldn't have been that bad of a plan. And besides, Olaf had shown absolutely no religious animosity during his reign. He had campaigned with the Archbishop of Jorvik, and he had friendly relations with many Christians. And, this is the big one here, some sources indicate that Olaf himself was a Christian. So the more likely explanation here is what Olaf was doing was political. And if you look at a map and see where that church was located, you'll note that it's right on the path to the center of political activity in Scotland during this period. If Olaf was trying to develop a route to Scotland, either to link up with the kingdom or bring war upon it, and he encountered some sort of resistance in the north, that alone could explain why he'd go about sacking a church in his own territory. But unfortunately, we don't know for sure because our records are so bad. Furthermore, we don't know if there were other targets, or if he burned down villages or fought off an ambush. If we knew any of that, it could go a long way to explain it. But unfortunately, this stuff is largely written by religious men, which means that the sacking of the church was the marquee event for them. Burning down a small village probably wouldn't have garnered the same amount of attention. Similarly, if we knew what Scotland's political stance was regarding Olaf, that could help. But unless we find some new material, this is a bit of a black box and we're just going to have to make some educated guesses. But one thing is clear. Olaf's second year on the throne wasn't placid. He had issues to contend with. Meanwhile, just as much trouble was brewing in the south. In Wales, the power struggle between the kingdoms of De Hybarth and Gwyneth were threatening to explode into outright war. And it appears that King Hwyl thought of De Hybarth was at the epicenter of these mounting tensions. And it was a conflict that had been simmering for decades. Back at the turn of the 10th century, in the first few years of the 900s, Hwyl was just the king of Devid. However, it wasn't long before he began to exercise power over the kingdom to his north, ruled by his brother. And by 920, Hwyl had successfully combined the two kingdoms into a single nation he called Dehybarth. Immediately afterwards, possibly as a demonstration of power, Hwyl took a pilgrimage to Rome, becoming the first Welsh king to do so. Pilgrimages to Rome were a big deal during this time period, and not just for spiritual reasons. Politically, this signaled a lot, and it actually provided Hul with a way to build a common bond with Athelstan. And unsurprisingly, soon after that pilgrimage, we see Hul expanding his power over Wales, ostensibly with the support of Athelstan. And by 930, he'd absorbed another Welsh kingdom, Brachiniog. Meanwhile, in North Wales, there was another kingdom, Gwyneth. And traditionally, Gwyneth had been the power center of Wales. It was the kingdom that gave us figures like Cabwathlin, Rodri, and Anarod. And currently, it was being ruled over by the line of Rodri, also known as the House of Aberfra. And the head of that line was Rodri Mower's grandson, Idwald the Bald. 
But Idwal didn't just rule over Gwyneth. The kingdom of Powys had also come under his power as a client kingdom. And like Huel, Idwal had also allied himself with Athelstan. And we even see them together appearing in his court, and sometimes even marching to war with him. So, Wales was home to essentially two powerful political blocs, who were both known for their expansionist and ambitiously muscular political acts. They were also two kingdoms who were allied with Athelstan, and appear to have been using that alliance to strengthen their positions and ensure some sort of truce. And then, Athelstan died. And for the Welsh kingdoms, Athelstan's death threw their alliances into turmoil. There was no guarantee that this new King Edmund would feel bound in any way by his brother's agreements, nor was there any guarantee that he had the strength to intervene if he was called upon. And that meant that the delicate balance of power between these two large military blocks of the West was also thrown into turmoil. And right on cue in that same year, into Hybarth's neighboring kingdom of Gwent, King Cadell of Gwent was poisoned. And I don't know if Hul or King Idwal had anything to do with it, but things were moving quickly now, and people were dying. The events of the last few years had completely reshuffled the order on the island, and in that chaos, people were finding opportunities to claim power as the old power structure rushed to catch up if they could. And into that maelstrom, we have another intriguing entry in the Welsh annals. We're told that in 942, King Idwal of Gwyneth and his brother, Sub-King Eliseth of Powys, were killed in battle against the Saxons. And here's the thing that really jumps out at me. Idwal's two sons weren't elevated to the throne after his death. Instead, the kingdom went to an outsider, and not to an Englishman, even though we're told that the two kings fell to the English in battle. Instead, the kingdoms of Gwyneth and Powys were immediately seized by Gwyneth's main rival, King Huel Thaw of Dehybarth. While the record's unclear, this sounds very much like Gwyneth and Powys were subject to an English invasion, carried out with the support, or perhaps in support of, King Huel. And it seems that the ultimate goal of that invasion was to expand the power of the kingdom of Dehybarth, which was friendly to English interests. And there's subtext to all of this as well. In addition to what it says about the politics of Britain, and in addition to the tectonic shift that this battle caused in the power structure of Wales, we're also seeing King Huel Thaw being elevated to near Rodri Mauer levels of power. A tremendous force was rising in the West. And this entry also tells us something about what was happening in England. Namely, that the Ferd had been fully reformed, and that by 942, it was demonstrating that it was quite capable and dangerous in the field. So, that's the lay of the land in 942. England was beginning to show signs that it was returning to its military position that it had been in prior to Brunenburg, and King Edmund was showing that he was willing to deploy those forces. Wales was consolidating under the rising power of King Huel Thaw, thanks in large part to the support he was gaining from Edmund. King Olaf was rapidly expanding his power and re-establishing the Dane law and clamping down on any rebellious elements within his domain. Strathclyde, seeing Olaf as a rising power, was allying itself and its fortunes with him. And Scotland was facing off with a succession crisis and retreating behind its borders, removing itself from the growing conflict on the island, likely much to the consternation of Olaf, who seems to have been seeking some sort of alliance. It's amazing how the loss of a power center can lead to so much change. 
and into this shifting landscape came another blow. King Olaf Guthrifsson died. We aren't told how he died, nor are we told where he was, nor what was happening when he died. We aren't told anything. One minute, he's running around lighting matches in a church. The next minute, he's dead. Honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if his death came as the result of some sort of campaign or while he was putting down a rebellion. Though, of course, given the nature of Northumbria, there's always the chance that he died because someone slipped a dagger in his back. But however his end came, after doing seemingly the impossible and reforming Danelaw, King Olaf Guthrison only ruled over it for a year. And now, there was another power vacuum on the island. And I'm sure the question that was on the minds of the power-hungry nobility of this era was this. Who would take command of the Danelaw? And how would the ambitions of that new leader affect the goals of the rest of the warlords who were jockeying for position? And Olaf had brothers that were on the line of succession. So would the kingdom go to them? Given how new the kingdom was, and how chaotic succession had been in the past, there wasn't a clear tradition for how this would be handled. And it's not clear how it was resolved, but it seems that rather quickly it was determined that the throne wouldn't go to Olaf's immediate family, but instead it would go to his cousin. A cousin who was confusingly also named Olaf. Olaf Citrixen. Now Citrixen had been at his cousin's side right from the start, which might have been why he was selected to rule after Olaf Guthrifsen died. The subjects of Jorvik would have known him fairly well by this point. But that being said, Citrixen was a very different kind of ruler. Guthrifsen had been a Vikinger. He ruled through the sword, and he had reestablished the Danelaw through battle and war. But Citrixen didn't seem to have these same inclinations to military power. And for King Edmund, a man who had spent years now diligently building up his army, and who had already tested his reformed Ferd in the battlefields of Wales, this disruption on the northern throne and this comparatively mild king of Jorvik provided him with one hell of an opportunity. So as Citrixen was assuming the mantle of rule and working to ensure that the men who were loyal to his cousin would in turn be loyal to him, Edmund mustered his forces and charged forth, likely sometime in the autumn. He was going to do to Citrixen precisely what Guthrifsen had done to him only a few years earlier. Unfortunately, we don't know the particulars of Edmund's conquest. It's just kind of glossed over. But within a year, Edmund had retaken all of the five boroughs, pushing Citrixen back to Jorvik. And considering that the northern territories weren't exactly a bastion of loyalty, the walls must have felt like they were closing in on Citrixen. But for the people of the five boroughs, who had been living under Scandinavian rule for the last two years, what happened here was a deliverance. In fact, there's a contemporary poem called The Redemption of the Five Boroughs that speaks of Edmund's reconquest and talks about how Edmund had redeemed the population through his valor. That same poem, incidentally, is the first record, actually, that we have of the five boroughs being discussed as a single political body. And here's that poem. Quote, In this year, King Edmund, prince of the English, protector of kinsfolk, beloved doer of deeds, overran Mercia as bounded by Dor, Whitwall Gate, and the River Humber, broad ocean stream, the five boroughs, Leicester and Lincoln and Nottingham, likewise Stamford and also Derby. 
The Danes were before this subject for a long time by force under the Norsemen, in bonds of captivity under the heathen, until through his valor, the protector of warriors, the son of Edward, King Edmund, redeemed them again, end quote. So the Chronicle obviously thinks this is a pretty big deal. It's rare that you get a poem in the Chronicle. And redeeming, by the way, was being used in the same way that you would say that slaves who were freed were redeemed. So the poem is saying that through Edmund's conquest, the people of the boroughs were freed from bondage. Meanwhile, in Scotland, the political pressure that had been building since the defeat at Brunanburh appears to have hit a tipping point in 943. We're told that after 43 years of rule, King Constantine II abdicated his throne and entered a monastery. Now, you might remember that entering a monastery, also referred to as tonsuring, was a common way to disinherit rivals. For a while, it was actually a popular way for a victorious noble to depose a lord into a monastery, generally at the point of a sword. In fact, it became so common that there were discussions on whether or not a person could actually be bound by forced tonsuring. So while this entry sounds placid and pious, looking at the cultural context of the time, it might have been anything but. Constantine's tonsuring might have been the result of a coup or a large-scale uprising against him. And Scotland would have been ripe for just this sort of upheaval. Like Jorvik, it was a young kingdom without a clear history of succession, and that left an open path to the throne for a variety of nobles. And it just so happened that there was one particularly powerful noble from a respected royal family who seemed to position himself to rule. Constantine's own cousin, Malcolm. And tellingly, even though Constantine had a living son, Indulf, it was Malcolm who was crowned king. And that means that Constantine's sudden act of piety might be our only remaining window into a political power play by a Scottish faction that had become displeased with Constantine's rule. But regardless of how it came about, this was yet another shift of power within a major political body on the island, and it threw relations in the north into turmoil. After all, the balance of power could shift quite quickly depending on whether or not Malcolm and Citrixen engaged in some sort of political alliance. But any decisions regarding alliances would have to be put on hold, because Citrixen had bigger issues on his plate. He'd only been on the throne for a hot minute, but in that time, the kingdom of Jorvik had not been doing well. They'd lost the five boroughs. God knows what was going on in the northern territories. Whatever political alliance that Guthrithson had been working on with Constantine was gone. And who knows what was going on with this new Malcolm. And meanwhile, to the south, King Edmund had a huge army and was allied with virtually all of Wales. This was not good for Jorvik. And it really didn't matter if it was Citric's fault or not. Because when you're king during this era, the status of the kingdom was a direct reflection on your ability and virtues, regardless of whether or not that belief is fair. And it was pretty clear that things weren't going well in Jorvik lately. And so, the people of Jorvik decided it was time for new management. So in the same year that Constantine abdicated the throne of Scotland, the people of Jorvik rose up against Citrixen and drove him out of the kingdom entirely. And in his place they installed Olaf Guthrifsson's brother, a man named Ragnald. And so, now we have another change in the power structure. But meanwhile, Edmund was really hitting his stride. 
And all of these upheavals were playing right into his hands. You see, he wasn't just reforming the Ferd. Edmund was also working on returning the court of England to its imperial status, and not just through his alliance with the Welsh. He was engaging in politicking on the island beyond that. Because we're told that later that year, new King Ragnald of Jorvik came to the court of England. And there, he met with the recently expelled Olaf Citrixen. And both of them were then baptized, with King Edmund acting as their godfather. What we're likely reading about here was the culmination of a peace treaty between the two rival factions. But more than that, this was the establishment of a spiritual familial relationship between them. And by acting as their baptismal sponsor, Edmund was placing himself at the head of that family. The start of Edmund's reign had not been a very good one. But over the course of a year, he'd retaken the five boroughs, established friendly relations with the most powerful king of Wales, and now he had two rival kings of Jorvik seeking his favor. After four years of struggling, Edmund was starting to fill the shoes of his older brother. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com, and you can find links to all our social media communities by going to the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Well, I-